I heard snow days are over. Did you ever watch Sister Wives? And you gotta make biscuits and gravy using what you got. Just because we analyze something doesn't mean we don't like it, James. Welcome to Literary Connections. We're friends who started a podcast because we live on opposite sides of the world, and we're using books to stay connected. Honesty Game, I'm James Earl, living in Milan, Italy. And Honesty Game back, I'm Melissa Hansen, and I've been listening to my Christmas playlist since December 26th of last year. Right. And this month, we're reading Kisser Once for Me by Alison Cochran. Reminder, spoilers, we'll be spoiling this book, but it's basically got the plot of a Lifetime movie. So only if you are surprised by the twists and turns of a Lifetime or a Hallmark movie are there spoilers. And we're heading into the season where the only thing I watch on Netflix are those Christmas rom-coms, and it's basically one of those. It's the same thing. Exactly. It's like The Princess Switch. Well, it's more in the vein of you can either go marrying royalty in the snow Mm -hmm. or city girl needs to return to the woods to fall in love with someone who's a lumberjack. And it's that vibe. Yeah, you've seen both of those movies before. Yeah. I mean, it does have an interesting take on the prince that's there to save the day. Mm-hmm. He does, but it's different. Anyway, there's going to be spoilers like that one. Yeah. And also a content warning. There's more sexy times in this one. Yeah. It's another romance novel that, you know, it takes a while to get there, but it does. It does get there. That's what she said. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> you set it up right. anyway anyway <laughs> i think you're up for the summary this time there's a minute on the clock three two one we open on last christmas when ellie our main protagonist gave away her heart to jack a lumber sexual lesbian baker who lives in an airstream in portland when they met in powell's bookstore both reaching for alison bechtel's classic fun home once ellie finds out that jack actually has a wife She runs away, gets fired from her job, and is living a miserable existence as a barista. It turns out that the owner of the property where the coffee shop is, this guy named Andrew, is a millionaire, millionaire, millionaire. And his grandfather has put a provision in his will saying that Andrew cannot get his money unless he is married. They decide to get into a marriage of convenience, but this requires them presenting themselves as an engaged couple to Andrew's family. Guess what? Andrew's sister is Jack. The hot girl from last year. What is Ellie going to do? We don't know. We do know. You've seen this movie before. The end. <laughs> All right. That was a great ending to your <laughs> to your summary. So first question, what is your favorite Taylor Swift album and why is it 1989? Ooh. You know what? I'm not going to, I'm not going to fight against that one. <laughs> if we're talking about Taylor Swift at her I'm secretly singing about my own life in a really like paparazzi way. I do think actually 1989 is her best album. I mean, it's just bop after bop. It's bop after bop. Harry Styles proceeds to be the inspiration for all romantic insanity, as we've also seen with Don't Worry Darling. Yeah. And 1989. He's just, he's a muse. (laughs) But I do think that if we're talking about her quarantine albums of Folklore and Evermore, those are objectively better albums but only the tracks that Aaron Dusser is doing, not Jack Antonoff. That is intended to be yeah. shade to Jack Antonoff. <laughs> I knew you were going to say most of that. And I really like that part of the book because I feel like it characterized the main character pretty well. Where it was like, you're just a, you're a folklore person. Okay, an Evermore person. Oh, sorry. You're just an Evermore person. I can't believe person. you're conflating these two very different <laughs> albums. 
Folklore is a spring album. Evermore is a winter album. <laughs> yeah, I I like how they call it. She said that Evermore was the best Christmas album ever published or something like that. I never considered it. I wouldn't say it's the best, like, Christmas album. I do think it's a good winter sad album, mm-hmm. mainly because of the two songs in it that I think are really like that. First of all, Tis the Damn Season gets its own call out, which is about hooking up with your high school sweetheart <laughs> and being like, I don't know, man, we've graduated college everything's fucked up but i guess we'll keep hooking up but like let's not talk about it yeah, we're home for the holidays it's like the sad morose version of the snl skit do it in my twin bed oh god <laughs> i don't think i know it but i can imagine that skit writes itself yeah, yeah yeah and then i think there's like other ones like i think ivy is christmasy kind of like a production-y style but that brings us to a point that i know you wanted to make which is this Book has a great soundtrack. Like, I want to make it a Spotify playlist. I feel like this book existed just to be a Spotify playlist. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. which is very weird because there were two main mixed media elements of this. Yes. And one was the music and one was the comics. That didn't exist. That didn't exist. And <laughs> the thing about the music is you're able to share the lyrics. And also she was picking very popular songs that you could, like, understand how they were scoring the actual like chapter that we were reading Mm -hmm. the comics not existing is a big miss that does not make sense to me (laughs) yeah i i don't i don't get that one like the chapters are introduced as a webcomic by oliver art sometimes and then it's just not a webcomic and i guess to make it a webcomic is probably a lot more money like i bet that the the printing just gets way more complicated if it's a webcomic but Still feels like a miss. Well, especially there's like the first episode is on the author's website. And I feel like you at least have to commission the whole thing and just like be like, visit this website to see it. Yeah. It just feels like it's such a central part of her character. And writing is such a different medium than comic art that we're actually missing an actual essential part of this character and her way that she's connecting with her audience. And the meet cute has to do with Alison Bechdel. It seems like it should have been a webcomic. It's an interesting connection, too, because there was a lot of a lot of things similar to Alison Bechdel's work going through this one. The, like, autofiction element to it, where Alison Bechdel writes about her memoirs that are sort of autofiction. And then this webcomic is essentially exactly that. The people struggling with home life. And it's got a lot of shout-outs that would make a webcomic inside it make a lot of sense. but Or just link out to it. Or especially just as someone who was in fandom in my youth, which it seems like Alison Cochran, the author of this, was. Like, there are just, like, tons of mediums. Like, my college roommate would send tiny clay sculptures of My Chemical Romance people to people (laughs) from her fandom. Bandom. Sorry, it was bandom. But, like, you would either lean towards, like, drawings or you'd lean towards writing. And they're a different skill set and they're a different kind of person. And I think it was just, like, a mistake if you were a writing person to represent yourself as a comic person because they're just different you're a different person yeah and i was even having a hard time imagining what the webcomic would look like because sometimes the language was so descriptive which i guess you could do in, in images but it was so like inside the character's heads it was so first person driven which i guess you could do with thought bubbles but it still seemed like even the dialogue just didn't seem like the type of dialogue you'd see in thought bubbles it was prose. Yeah, I would have rather almost that we didn't have it because it was prose. I wish that we had not done it. I was trying to think of an alternative of like, oh, what if it was written like a script? But I think that still would be weird. Right, like a screenplay or something. Yeah. Yeah. I almost wish that like what she was known for was like she wrote like Netflix rom-coms and then it was like written as a script or something that she like 
put somewhere. Thank you to our producer who is now projecting the first comic and the only comic from the author's website onto our screens. Here's what I will say. The reason that people like things like this is because look at how cute this is and how hot they are. That's why this got picked up. It's like a cute lesbian rom-com-y yeah. thing that like shows up way better in visuals than it does in prose. Yeah. So looking at my notes from this book, there were a lot of things that I have written that then get said very explicitly, which I'm always a little frustrated by where I'm like, trust, trust your reader a little bit. No, no, no. Lifetime movies do not trust their readers or their watchers. How dare you? (laughs) Yeah, I should know that. But like I have in my notes somewhere need versus want Mm -hmm. that the protagonist wants the money but needs family. And then she like literally explicitly says that at some point. I have in my notes somewhere... Airstream is a symbol of both like a cage that protects and keeps people out, but also keeps her. Like, I have all these things, and then it's like explicitly said near the end of the book. And so, yeah, it was, it was one of those where it had a lot of really thoughtful elements. Like, narratively, it's pretty tight. There's a lot of things that have payoff, but then it didn't let me do the work. I would have been really upset if it had made me do any work, James. <laughs> like, from the very beginning, you knew this was going to be a pair of the spares romance. Where oh, they... God. The pair of the spares. <laughs> like... I don't think that... <laughs> I don't think that pair of the spares... It's my opinion that yes. pair of the spares is at its most fun when it's the most random. And this one was not random. This no! one was, like, established 25% in. You knew it was going to be a pair of the spares romance. Yeah, the moment he's like, oh, my sister Jack has this friend. And then yeah. the narration says something like... There's something he's not telling me. Yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> and Andrew's jaw <laughs> tightens. Um, and you're like, oh, this is how we get out of it, is that Andrew's actually in love with Jack's best friend. Easy. I mean, I'm an idiot. I didn't put Jacqueline and Jack together until the book put those pieces together. I don't know what's wrong with me. This is why they can't trust their readers, James. Yeah, yeah, this is why they can't trust their readers. <laughs> it obviously made the experience of reading the book better in that way, where I was like, whoa, it's Jack. <laughs> Drama. That is the exact same thing that happened to me in when I watched Crazy Stupid Love, and it turns out they'd been calling Hannah Nana for banana the entire time. <laughs> I actually like screamed at the theater. I was like, "What?" <laughs> it's a borrowed rom-com trope that is used effectively. Yeah. I want to talk about the airstream for a little second. Airstreams are so expensive. So expensive. There was this element of Jack's character that was really frustrating to me. She's like, "I need to try everything on my own." But like was getting great business loans and basically a subsidized airstream and all of these sorts of things, which is like, you're not really making it on your own, mm-hmm. nor should you have to make it on your own. I'll be real with you, though. I didn't know that airstreams were that expensive until I was in my 30s. And Jack is only in her 20s. So like, it's reasonable that she just like didn't know that airstreams are that much money. Well, I mean, I only know it because they were featured heavily on The Bachelorette. Mm. And they're like, oh my gosh, my overnight date? With The Bachelorette is in an airstream? <laughs> it's more so just this thing where Jack thinks that she's living this like life of independence, but it's actually she's living this super bougie life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. She's left an extremely bougie life to live a normal bougie life and doesn't get it. Yeah. And I think there's also been this unique tension because I feel like we're finally getting the pushback to Instagram van life influencers Mm -hmm. and that idea of glamorized homelessness. Mm. If you're choosing to live, first of all, if you're choosing to live in an airstream, is is it like that much of an inconvenience? 
I don't know. Right. But like when you choose to do things like that, like your repairs are insane. You're like showering at 24 hour fitnesses or like having to get a bunch of campground reservations. And it's just like another way for like the rich to play act as poor Mm -hmm. with all the amenities of something nice. It's like the new version of rich people going to Burning Man. Yeah. I mean, this book did not, it kind of did, but it was a break from the pattern that we've been experiencing of having the really nice millionaire who is really caring. In this one, the millionaire was still an asshole. The like father was a jerk and the kids are just like having to deal with having an asshole as a father. In the books we've been reading, there's a, but it's a good kind of millionaire. On the other side of that, yeah, we've got the glamorization of poverty in this one that in our last book, I don't think did that. In both books, though, because in the previous book, the main character was trying to open a flower shop. Right. And Jack is trying to open a bakery. Yeah. And she's taking it super personally that people want to give her a loan because they think her business might fail. And it's like, it probably will. (laughs) Right. Most businesses do. (laughs) Most businesses fail. And I don't know why you're taking this super personally. (laughs) Take the loan from your family that has a lower interest rate. Yeah. On the topic of her being frustrated by people thinking she's going to fail, there was an interesting theme that I am still working through in my head in this book where like every character seems to have a bit of self-discrepancy issues, and this is true of most people, but there's the aspirational self or the ought self, and then there's the actual self. And nearly every character in this book has a moment where they see their ought self through the eyes of somebody else. So it's almost like in order to create their ideal self they first need to see somebody else see it in them and that like nobody does it independently and i feel like the ending of the book sort of confirms this just to run through some examples jack won't start her bakery until the stranger that she met in the snow sees her like ideal self in her and like that gives her the confidence to do it Elle doesn't understand that, like, her ideal self is one who creatively writes and does these kinds of things until somebody trusts her and, like, sees that in her. And there's Andrew Kim Prescott, who needs Elle to say, hey, dude, you're actually in love with Dylan. You could make this work. And then he, like, can achieve that. But it's like everybody needs somebody else to see it for them. Nobody else sees it for themselves. And even, like, Jack needs to then step away from Elle by the end in order to achieve it by herself. But, like, the catalyst always seems to be something in the external world. I mean, that's also classic rom-com trope, though. It's like, you don't realize that you're in love with each other. You complete me. It's other people helping you be your best self. I mean, I think there is a strong current in this book that is anti-independence. I I don't mean independence in, like, a bad way i mean like there's no reason to go through life alone it's like a strong narrative like jack is choosing the hard path that she doesn't need right ellie is choosing the hard path that she doesn't need like your best friend at the coffee shop has been offering you a closet this entire time yeah take the help right she thinks that the help should be coming from a family that doesn't want to help but there are plenty of people that do love her but she's only looking at her parents who left her and then drawing conclusions from that without taking the help that's being given to her which brings us to Linz, who like i think is also part of this except her narrative is a cautionary tale but like her insistence on being called Linz rather than mom is she's like trying to see a version of herself from the external world like she wants l to confirm her status as Linz rather than as mom 
And when that breaks down and, like, Elle can't see her as Linz and can only see her as mom, then she just hangs up and disappears from the narrative. Yeah. After we read She Gets the Girl, this one was another bummer of a mom situation. I think it did highlight this interesting thing of why do people get into relationships? And the stakes of this, I didn't feel were as high as they could be all the time in this, but the stakes became highest when Ellie was like, I want to be part of this family more than I want the money. Yeah. And the danger of losing that with losing the engagement. Yeah. And that's a classic need versus want thing where you like pursue this one thing, in this case money, but then it comes in conflict with the thing that you actually need. And then you have to sacrifice the thing that you thought you wanted in order to take the thing you need. It's straight out of the movie Cars. (laughs) (laughs) Owen Wilson in all things helps us through our emotional journeys. Yeah. Yeah. He doesn't actually need to win. He needs the sense of community and the respect. I thought the choice of making Ellie demisexual was interesting. I'm having a lot of conflicting feelings about that choice. Demisexuality for our audience, if you haven't read the book or if you're not aware, is basically you need to have like an emotional connection and a feeling of trust with someone before you're sexually attracted to them. Ellie is the main character, repeatedly is like, I'm demisexual, so that that's like why I'm not like super attracted right away to this like millionaire guy who wants to marry me with six pack abs. Mm-hmm. But we see her have an instantaneous sexual attraction to Jack in their first scene in Powell Bookstore. And there's something about that that makes me a little bit uncomfortable of basically like, you're a normie, you just haven't met the right person. Ooh, okay. Is what I felt when I read that scene. Yeah. Especially considering her best friend Meredith keeps on putting this idea of like, you just have trauma, you have generalized anxiety disorder, you're a frozen burrito. And I feel like there was this whole thing where it actually turned out that her sexuality was not her sexuality. It was just trauma. Hmm. And I think that there's always like a hard tension there when you're linking sexuality to trauma. Yeah, uh, agreed. I mean, it is difficult to have a demisexual protagonist in a me-cute. I mean, their me-cute was, if I tried to defend it, their me-cute was, it was a full day extended thing. And the attraction wasn't immediate. It did take... A bunch of very close quarters, high intensity, honesty game moments. Like they're stuck in a a snowstorm. Like there were things that required them to trust each other throughout that day that built it. So like I think she was possibly conscious of this critique and was doing what she could to keep the meat cute what it was. But yeah, I mean your point is taken that it could be used narratively to create misunderstandings or further prejudice or hardships for demisexual people. I think there was something interesting, especially like labeling the demisexuality. And then also there was a strong emphasis in this book about what queer dating is like, especially in Portland, which I've been thinking about a lot. Have you guys seen Bros with Billy Eichner? (laughs) No, no, tell me about it. (laughs) So I'm reacting. Well, we did all watch Fire Island together um, for our Debating Darcy podcast. And the way that that ends is the Darcy character and the Elizabeth Bennet character end up being like, yeah, we're super hot for each other and we love each other, but also we don't believe in monogamy. And that's like viewed as a happy ending is like, no, we're not believing the heteronormativity. It's like we're applying these sorts of like romantic constructs into like what makes sense for ourselves. And Bros by Billy Eichner is a rom-com about queer dating. And I feel like his central thesis is gay dating is not the same as straight dating. You can't just have like a gay rom-com where two beautiful men just fall in love with each other. Like it's actually like different in the same way that it's different to be like dating someone within your race versus outside of your race. Like it's just 
love is not blind and love is within a community. And so it's a movie with like a lot of like, these two guys are in love with each other, but they're also like in a lot of threesomes and foursomes. And there's a lot of things have to navigate about like top and bottom and like whether or not they use testosterone. There's just like a lot of things Mm -hmm. (laughs) that is part of the dating that is not part of heterosexual dating. And that's like a huge part of it in the same way that I think that was part of Fire Island. And so I think it's interesting in this book that all the main characters are basically being like, we don't like dating in the queer community in Portland. We are traditionalists in that way. Mm. We're not polyamorous. We are not looking to pursue this on Tinder or Hinge because that is a different kind that we are not. And how do you negotiate that? Mm-hmm. within that range of like acceptance and everything goes but also like what do I know for myself that might be indoctrinated but is might be just like actually what I am right I mean her friend at Roselandia Ari is dating a couple but uh, your point is well made that this book applies labels to people and then essentially it's a traditional narrative and so it's just like a demisexual queer relationship where the labels are just pasted onto a typical heteronormative narrative. It does have the love, what does she call it? Like a love trapezoid or she a love tesseract or something. Mm-hmm. That's like a twist here. But the way that the relationships work is pretty heteronormative with these twists of the prince who would save a traditional character. Instead, it's his sister. Yeah. I'm just curious, like what, what would like a polyamorous rom-com look like? I think that's what maybe like where my brain is, is like is like can we have this genre? I mean, I feel like Sally Rooney's conversation with friends was a love story between a group of people rather than between individuals. It did not end happily. <laughs> it does not end happily. No, no, no. <laughs> that's not how these are supposed to end. <laughs> it's not a rom com. Yes, you're right. The the whether or not there can be a polyamorous rom com, I think we need to rethink narrative pretty dramatically. But like, I think that. The Sally Rooney book could be a, a starting place of, like, to get to the, like, happy ending bit. Yeah. You need to work through how the, na- like, all the nuts and bolts of how the narrative is supposed to work first. So the Sally Rooney thing might be a step towards a polyamorous rom-com. It's so interesting because I'm, like, offering this critique, but I'm super, I'm a normie here. Yeah. I wanted to see, like, two people, two attractive people fall in love, to quote Mindy Kaling. And (laughs) I don't see how you can narratively or even just, like, practically sometimes add in additional people. Yeah. But it made me just aware that, like, huh, in the era of acceptance as we're trying to, like, make this genre Christmas rom-com, one for all people, all races, all genders, all sexualities, like, how do we do that? Without being like, oh, Portland dating sucks. Everyone's in a triad. Right. I mean, Jack might be the answer. It's this just like totally assertive in what she is, what she wants. And this like, we just need to talk it out. The straights are the ones who keep things from each other. And Jack's whole personality of like taking up space, asserting herself in that space, knowing what she wants, pursuing it. That might be the model for how it could go. I wonder if there's a way to apply this to that theme of that there's the ideal self and the reality it never lives up to it. The like, I want a job at Leica, but the reality doesn't live up to that. And that needing to see yourself in other people, if that, if we can apply that to the queer element. I'm sorry, I got distracted because I'm reading through all of my highlights and there's the line, 
Taylor Swift is the greatest lyricist who has ever lived. I'm pretty sure Bob Dylan listened to folk more and immediately threw out his Nobel yeah. Prize for literature. <laughs> Yeah, I got that highlighted too. Um, I'm gonna be real. I'm a huge Taylor Swift fan. She's not Bob Dylan. <laughs> right, right. I love the the way that she builds a metaphor around cardigans and all that stuff. But Bob Dylan's body of work is just a different. It's a different thing. Playing a different game. Taylor has too many like garbage track metaphors. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I feel like the mixed metaphors of Love Story alone. Yeah. Do not allow her to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. I don't. I'm gonna. I'm gonna hold off on that hot take. I don't know if I'm gonna say that. I think it's still open to Taylor, because I think that she's very good at responding to previous parts of her revoir. More art can fix the mistakes of her previous art, and I think she, we've seen her do that before. Like that's what style does, where it fixes the mistakes of uh, I'm not like other girls in her previous work. Yeah, I mean she she's capable of overcoming these things if she lets go Jack Antonoff. Yes, <laughs> she just needs to keep working with Aaron Dessner. I don't know why her entire new album is all Jack Antonoff. It's just a Bleachers album. <laughs> Sorry, you were having a point about. So we've got this like a big theme of ideal self or ought self versus self-actual. And I wonder if there's something, if we could find support for that theme in your critique of the queer relationships in the book. I mean, I think there is a part of relating it to your previous point where you're like, oh, nobody realizes anything unless someone says it to them first. Yeah. (laughs) It seems almost crazy that like anyone can make a hard line choice of like, I'm demisexual without somebody telling me that. Or I... I'm not polyamorous without, like, it, it, it's one of those things where it's like, how do you know? Mm-hmm. And I think this is just like a general question, like, in society. I think we are all, like, like we can't really always tell, like, what's our desires versus societal desires. Right. But it's an interesting contrast of how do they know which of the things that people have told them are the real things versus the things that they've just internalized by society. Yes, this is, like, an essentially queer question. Like, this is what queer theory is obsessed Mm -hmm. with because there is the always already present heteronormative narrative that we live with and then there's like trying to find your authentic self within those present narratives that you've internalized and just have grown up with and have within you and oftentimes those things can't be decoupled like the distinction between what is socially conditioned and then what is your authentic self those things are necessarily entangled in all these characters search for their authentic sexual identities. I mean, Jack seems pretty confident in hers from the start. Well, she has the ex-wife. Oh, yeah. Like, I think that's where she's lacked confidence is right. she just wants someone to believe in her and ends up in like this codependent relationship with someone who's polyamorous mm-hmm. and is like, this is not me. Like, I need someone who, like, believes in me, and they're 100% me. Yeah. And they want me to open a bakery. And will love my dog named Paul Hollywood. One thing that is a recurring theme in the book that we haven't talked about is the idea of a snow day. Oh, yeah. I heard snow days are over. I heard that, like, after school's figured out how to do school on Zoom, that there's no such thing as a snow day anymore. That's what I heard. Wow. I mean... My personal reaction to snow days is being from Chicago, we did not have snow days really because we have yeah. an amazingly the infrastructure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like the infrastructure to handle snow is like supreme. I think that I had maybe a couple of snow days and they were super fun. Yeah. But I don't think that they were like these deeply romantic notions, mainly because my parents were panicking about childcare. <laughs> yeah. 
and like what to do with us. <laughs> right, right. I think that they, they were always so magical because you wake up, it's like confirmed over the radio or whatever in, in the, the radio 90s. Or, the, yeah. or the TV. You could watch the local news. And then there was just this day of no obligations because you most likely had done the thing you were supposed to do for homework or whatever, and you just got a day to just be. Yeah. I, maybe that's the like symbolism of the snow day in this one is like it gave them this day to just like be and to do something for themselves and then they end up finding somebody crying in the Alison Bechdel section of the bookstore. The quote that I liked about snow days is the thing about snow is it never lasts and you're always left a slightly dingier version of the world when it starts to melt. Yeah right I like that as a metaphor because that is literally all I think about when I used to see snow on Long Island, especially when I had to work in it and like dig my car out is like, yeah, it looks beautiful, but like this sucks. This is going to be nice for a couple hours and then it's just going to be a worse version of what it was for months and months afterwards. Yeah, it is a good metaphor in the sense of, first of all, that poor couple from where they go, Cornell. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I can't yeah. remember they had to wear all their sweatshirts. That Jack and Ellie just like break into their cabin and have like tons of sex. Yeah, yeah. And then leave their Venmo information, yeah. <laughs> charge us for what we stole. <laughs> That's like the bougiest life from our or aspiring not bougie love interest. I know. But there is that magic of like the snow day is them hooking up in this cabin in the middle of a snowstorm and then they wake up the next day. And they're like, wait, I'm still engaged to your brother. Like, there's a world that we have to, like, figure out. Yeah, yeah. It reminds me of that classic Dawson's Creek quote of, like, first kisses don't really count. They don't mean as much as second kisses. And it doesn't matter how many times you kiss the first night. That all counts as one kiss. Because the second one is the intentional one, is that you have to figure out what's next. And I think that's, like, one of the things about Snow Days is that it could be, like, anything is possible, but, like, the real world is coming. And how are you going to operate? Yeah, you wake up the next day and you need to deal with it. And you got to make biscuits and gravy using what you got. Which is snow. Which is snow. (laughs) So a recurring idea within this novel, or a recurring tension in this novel, is pissing off or pleasing one's parents. And like for the beginning of the entire book, Elle feels like she needs to please her parents and that her parents, specifically her mother's, inability to show up for her is a result of her not being kind enough or not like pleasing her mother enough and like sending her money and all this other stuff there's andrew kim prescott's complicated relationship with his parents there's jack's complications with her parents this tension between understanding when to piss off the parents and like when it's enough when that like relationship has had enough so like andrew yelling at his father about the mistress and whatever or l telling her mother that the relationship is changing and that's like pissing off the parents are there any thoughts on this like recurring topic of family found family pleasing pissing off parents well i think part of it is learning boundaries and being aware of like the control that you have with your relationship with your parents and it is a two-way street so I also think it's interesting the contrast of Andrew and Jack where Jack is like I'm dropping out of college I don't want your money and I just want to like live in a subsidized airstream so I can like bake versus Andrew plays the game he's like I'm gonna use your money I'm gonna get that Stanford degree even though I don't have really good (laughs) paying attention skills and I can't remember like my fake girlfriend's (laughs) information 
but he's like, I know what game I'm playing and then I know how long I'm willing to play this game mm-hmm. and who I'm willing to play it for and where I'm willing to sacrifice and where I'm not. I don't think either of them is wrong. Yeah, and that's that's interesting because I feel like then this concept of or this recurring topic of pleasing and pissing off one's parents, like that's in service to this larger idea of articulating boundaries, knowing what your abilities are in like romantic relationships and family relationships and any kind of relationships, like knowing what you're willing to, how much of the game you're willing to play and what parts of the game you're not willing to play. And so the parents are just one articulation of that larger idea that's being explored in the novel. I also, there's a part of me that almost likes the fact that like Andrew is still a sellout. He's just like very consistent. And it's interesting also to me that like, right, his father fires him, but then he immediately gets a job at the hedge fund. And Dylan's like, we're just gonna live with it. Like, yeah, I'm like, fuck capitalism, fuck the patriarchy kind of person, but we're just gonna deal with it. I know. (laughs) I'm just gonna deal with my rich hedge fund boyfriend. Right, still wear the t-shirts, but live the life of the man. And and I think that's interesting, too. It doesn't end perfectly where, like, it ends with us where all of a sudden it was like, oh, we're both opening these beautiful businesses that are so successful from scratch. Like, things are still a little bit messy. Yeah, they still need to negotiate their identities. Yeah. Dylan's narrative is, is really similar to the rest of it, where their ideal life, where they get to wear the t-shirts and, say, down with capitalism, is complicated by the fact that they are married or aspirationally married to the literal man. And the, the like, picture of hedge fund capitalism, patriarchy... He's hot and is good at lifting heavy things. What else do you need? What else do you need? I mean, other than like living their ideal self of smashing the patriarchy and capitalism. Nah, just marry rich. All right, so I've picked out a couple IB questions. Great. Here's one, because we haven't talked about these characters at all yet. So there's an IB question in one of the past exams recently that said, explore the presentation and significance of older people in a work that you've studied and we have not talked about the grannies yet. Mima. <laughs> How is the significance of older people explored in this novel? Well, Mima knows and sees everything. I feel like there is like an, a wisdom that is allowed to the grandparents. Yeah. Only the female ones. Mm, that's good. That's good. Yeah, there was no wise old man in this one. No, they were all older assholes. Yeah, and then the women were boozy sages. Yeah. Like, I, I think obviously that is intentional, but there's something really cool about, like, two old boozy women who used to have the same ex-husband. Yeah, and they just get along and <laughs> make a lot of jokes together and yeah. understand everything that's going on in their house when nobody else does. Yeah, and they're like, of course you guys can get over this weird love quadrangle we did. Right. They also show how compassion can happen throughout Mm -hmm. where it's just like they default to this person is being brought in by somebody that we care about and therefore we're going to care about them and they do that with everybody very good moral compassionate and that they maintain friendships because they're like this person is deserving of love like they recognize somebody in pain and they maintain the relationship they invite the person over they do watercolors together at some fun boozy paint thing yeah there's this a classic sister wives relationship where, what, did you ever watch Sister Wives? No. I used to be really into it when in the first couple of seasons, it got into be a complete mess. Okay. But basically the Sister Wives at the time, when they first started watching, it was basically just like, the reason they were all best friends is because their husband was an idiot. And they could just build the life around him where they shared the burdens and the joys. 
And that is what I see in that relationship. Yeah. I could also see this like exploration of older people as propping up some of the other themes we've talked about. Like there was a scene when one of them really dunked on the grandfather and says, you know, he was a total asshole. And then says, my apologies to the other one. And the other one's like, none taken. Yeah. And, but this idea of like, there's like your experience of the world and then there's other people's experience of the world. And they like let each other have their experience and care for each other anyway, even when those things come in conflict with each other. And so, like, they're, like, fully self-actualized people who have understood what parts of themselves are culturally constructed and what parts they choose for themselves. And they, like, move through the world with that kind of confidence and are models for the younger people to follow. And so even, like, the way that they treat Elle after the blow-up, like, that serves as a model for how other people can treat them in the family. Yeah. I feel like the adult character that we didn't get as much of a read-on that I wanted was Andrew and Jack's mother, Catherine. Yeah, we know that she really cares about being a mom. Like, all her characterization, I think, probably appropriately, all of her characterization comes from people who care about her. So in the same way that, like, every character needs to be seen for their ideal self before they can become that ideal self, like, we only see Catherine through the eyes of people who love her and, like, see what that ideal self is of this, like, really good mom who wants quality time yeah maybe it's like a warning or something but it's very interesting because when andrew is in the car like quizzing ellie on like tell me about my mom tell me about my dad you basically find out they like met in grad school and then she immediately became a stay-at-home mom yeah i feel like i want to know more about this i thought we would get far more in detail about like how that happened right she was in grad school yeah i can't remember what good grad school they were at but they were at like a good grad school together and Again, feminism is making your own choices, but there is something interesting to me that that is the role that she chose to play. The dichotomy there that's very interesting to me is like, she's 100% Korean. And so her choosing that like almost subservient motherly role, but they hyphenated the kids' last names is super fascinating to me on like a progressive level of what it means to be like demonstrating progressivism, but in one way, but potentially not actually like doing it in practice. Yeah, this is really open for some good fanfic. The story of making that decision about hyphenated names, the backstory between she's pregnant, what are we going to do, what her career was going to be before she met Mr. Prescott, and how she is not able to see his blatant infidelity that you could tell just being a reader. Like, as soon as the character of Mr. Prescott is introduced, you're like, I know, I know what that is. I know why he's not there. Yeah, I kind of was a little annoyed like how unforgivably terrible he was and how unforgivably terrible like Ellie's mom was. Mm-hmm. There's a pair of the spares. Just enact your awfulness on each other. Right. That would be a really lovable pair of the spares. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's the most random it could have been. Because I, I do feel like they were the most two-dimensional characters. Yeah, for sure. And just like served as like the reasons for the main character's childhood trauma. Right. There's a big problem in the clear line and that linear causality between the trauma and then the the ways that they treat their romantic partners. It's not the best. But it all ends happily. There, there's definitely going to be a double wedding. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I kind of like the book. I had a good time with it. Oh, yeah, yeah, no. It, it delivers exactly what it's supposed to be. Yeah, yeah. Just because we analyze something doesn't mean we don't like it, James. Yeah. The next one we've got picked out is also a holiday rom-com. Holiday rom-com part two? 
which is it? Is it lumber sexuals or is it rich prince? Uh, I'm not sure. Here's what I know about it. It's called The Do-Over, and it's by Lynn Painter. And it's got the trope that, for some reason, I really love, and I don't know why I love it so much, but it's the Groundhog's Day trope. of You do something over and over and over again. Classic. Yeah, the Russian doll, the before I fall trope of reliving a day or a moment until you find your way out of it. There is a Mark Paul Gosselier led Christmas rom-com called 12 Days of Christmas that is that theme. With Zach Morris? With Zach Morris. No way. <laughs> yeah, but n- not when Zach Morris is trash. I'm, I'm looking at the Goodreads page for our next book, The Do-Over, and the readers also enjoyed is just a string of books with men who have more packs on their stomach than I've ever seen. Wait. <laughs> like it looks photoshopped. It's like that that painting. That painting of the woman lounging that has, like, 17 extra vertebrae. This is, like, <laughs> dudes with 17 extra packs. Oh, I see, I see, I see. Related books. I was like, what? Yeah. Moo you. What the hell is moo you? So it's hockey-themed? You like hockey, James. What? I didn't know that it was hockey-themed. We read a lot of hockey books. <laughs> we're not reading this. Oh, no, we're not. We're not re- Sorry, we're not reading that one, no. We're reading The Do-Over by Lynn Painter. Okay. Literary Connections is hosted by me, James Earl, and Melissa Hansen, and were produced by Kimberly Johnson. You can follow us on Twitter at lit underscore connections. Join us next month when we'll be reading The Do-Over by Lynn Painter. Waiters! Isn't that why in How I Met Your Mother, they're like the naked man worked two out of three times? Oh my gosh, I forgot about that. <laughs> That's a show that definitely didn't age well. No, that one definitely did not age well.